Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for an episode of ASHP's Practice Journeys, Career Pearls for Students. In this podcast series, you'll hear from pharmacists who work in various pharmacy practice settings to learn more about what a day in the life is like. You'll dive into careers you may have an interest in, but never took the time to learn about, or you may even find out about a practice area you never knew existed. My name is Emma Rednauer. I am a fourth-year student at the University of Cincinnati James L. Winkle College of Pharmacy, and I'm also currently serving as a member of the ASHP Pharmacy Student Forum Executive Committee. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Daniel Arndt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Sounds good. Just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your current positions? Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, my name is Dan Arndt. I'll start with, uh, uh, with my current position and then I'll kind of work work through the timeline here so you can see uh, see where I started and, and where I ended up. Uh, so I currently serve as a uh, pain stewardship or in other words, pain management and opioid stewardship pharmacist uh, here at the University of Cincinnati Health System. Uh, and then I work as a faculty member over at the University of Cincinnati College of Pharmacy. Uh, so kind of my uh, background or where I kind of came from and how I got here. Uh, so I grew up in Buffalo, uh, big, uh, big Buffalo sports fan, Bills fan. Have to give a shout out there to start the podcast, obviously. Um, but I uh, came to Ohio and did my undergrad at the University of Toledo. Uh, stayed there for pharmacy school as well. Uh, met my wonderful wife uh, while I was there at UT giving uh, tours um, and then decided to move up to the Cleveland area for my API rotations as well as uh, my residency, my PGY-1 and PGY-2. Uh, so I did a PGY-1 general pharmacy practice residency uh, and then I did a second year um, in a little bit of a weirder uh, specialty. Uh, but it was internal medicine and academia. Um, so I was one of those, uh, I'll, I'll just probably say weirdos, uh, that knew they wanted to uh, teach right away. Uh, I knew for my entire life, essentially, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. My mom's a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. My sister's a teacher. My dad was a teacher. Just pretty much what my family does. Um, but I always wanted to be a history teacher. Um, and then I found chemistry and physics during the same year in high school. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. This is really interesting. Uh, and then I found pharmacy and I was always fascinated by, uh, to me, just the idea of, okay, how does ibuprofen know that the pain I'm experiencing is a headache versus my ankle versus, uh, my wrist or something. And I was like, how does it know? Uh, now I know it doesn't. But at the time, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So uh, that led to me finding out about pharmacy school. Uh, and during that, I was kind of in this weird space of I could see myself being a pharmacist and I could see myself doing this, but I didn't like the idea of it taking me out of the classroom and not being a teacher. I didn't really see uh, if I would really get a lot of enjoyment uh, without having some sort of teaching in my in my life. Uh, so I, I kind of learned pretty quickly right in my P1 year that I wanted to uh, get my PharmD and then end up becoming a faculty member at a college of pharmacy. So uh, I was a little bit uh, an early start to that. 
Um, that being said, I didn't know exactly what clinically I wanted to pair with that. Uh, so when there was an opportunity to do a residency in, in internal medicine and academia that allowed me to be at a college of pharmacy, uh, working as a faculty member, as a resident as well, um, and get really involved in that, I really jumped at the chance. Um, and I think that's really helped set me up for success. So I will say that although I knew early on I wanted to teach, um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do a PGY2 in or specialize in until I was a resident. And then, as I mentioned, I work in pain stewardship and my residency was in internal med and academia. So you could make a decent argument that I never really figured out what I wanted to do and set myself to, on that path. I more found a lot of stuff that I liked doing and eventually found a, a little niche that I was uh kind of better at than in, in other areas and uh, kind of ran with it. So a little bit of knowing early on also mixed with uh, not knowing early on and making a really late decision. So, uh, so yeah, people, if you know what you want to do, that's great. And if you don't know what you want to do, that's also great. So that's my long winded answer to uh, telling you a little bit about me. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you so much for that background. Um, so for a pain stewardship pharmacist and even an educator, can you tell us a little bit about what those training requirements would be? Yeah. And so uh, this is something I kind of touched on a little bit in my in my previous answer, um, but not entirely. So I think there's plenty more to talk about. Um, so for me personally, I did two years and then the second was internal med and academia. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that is the typical training pathway for, for most uh, pain pharmacists, um, but there isn't necessarily a typical pathway or a pathway that everyone has to uh, follow in order to end up where you want to be. Um, so I would say for, I'll kind of start with the easy one, and that's academia, and then I'll move into uh, pain specifically, because that's where it gets a little bit more uh, tricky. Uh, but typical training requirements, one of the things I've noticed is there are very few faculty members at colleges of pharmacy that don't have some postgraduate residency training. Um, it is not a completely mutually exclusive group where if you don't have residency training, you cannot get a faculty job. Uh, but I will say that right now, whether it's right or wrong, uh, in order to really feel like you have a a really competitive shot at a faculty position if you don't have a lot of previous experience in academia, um, I would heavily encourage uh, you to seek out residency training because I think that will really set you up uh, for success in that realm. Uh, a lot of individuals in academia also do a PGY2, um, but not everyone. Uh, the other thing I will say with that is in terms of PGY2s, faculty members come from all backgrounds. So whether it's critical care or ID or nephrology or pain or whatever, uh, any of those can really be blended well with a job in academia. Um, I will say separately, I'm not sure how many people listening to this are as interested in academia as opposed to the pain medicine aspect of things. But um I thought as someone who wanted to teach uh, that internal medicine was the right place to take, uh, right, right direction for me to take as a PGY2, uh, in part because 
you kind of are specializing in not specializing. Uh, you're almost like, hey, how do I know a lot of information or a, a good amount of information about a lot of different subjects? Uh, so I could, so you can kind of transfer that to a jack of all trades or Swiss Army knife type of residency. And I would always encourage uh, individuals interested in teaching to consider something like that because I also think it makes you really marketable when you look for a job. Um, so when I was applying for positions out of that program, I harped on the fact that I was coming in with a lot more academic experience than most residency graduates would have. And I was able to harp on, yeah, I didn't do a pain PGY2, but I did an internal medicine and academia one. And I was able to work with pain patients and do X, Y, and Z and demonstrate that value. Uh, so I think that's a really big, uh, a big aspect of it, uh, because if you're in internal medicine, you can apply to a faculty position in internal medicine, or you could apply to a faculty position in infectious disease or cardiology. Most schools that are going to be hiring are going to be looking at, okay, we want to hire a cardiology person or someone to teach this or that. So let's look and interview people who did a PGY2 in that area. Or if they did a PGY2 in internal medicine, we feel pretty comfortable that they would be able to step into this type of role. So for academic interested people, uh, that's always something I would uh, kind of encourage. Uh, you can do whatever you want to specialize in, but that's always something that can, uh, you're not pigeonholed just based on what you do your PGY2 in. Uh, for pain specifically, I would say you can't go wrong with doing a, a PGY2 in, in pain and palliative care. Um, that would certainly be uh, helpful and, and a leg up to get your foot in the door. Um, but I kind of want to emphasize that pain is is a new, not newer specialty, but it's it's an area of pharmacy where, for example, right now they're doing a study to see how they should develop pain as a specialty with uh, the Board of Pharmacy Specialties. So it's still kind of in an earlier stage where, uh, yes, pain med management and medicine has been around for a long, long time, but the role of pain pharmacists and pain stewardship is really an evolving and growing field. Um, I imagine that there will be a time soon where it'll pretty much be only those who do PGY2s and pain or palliative care. Um, but I think right now when it's a little bit earlier, uh, you have a little bit more flexibility. And I will also say most of what people care about is not just what uh, residency you completed, but what you did during that experience and what you can talk about. Um, so I would say that the typical uh, cookie cutter answer would be do a PGY1 and a PGY2 in pain. Uh, but I'd say my realistic advice would be to seek out the things you are passionate in and find uh, ways to kind of express to potential employers how your skills are transferable and how you can make a difference in that role, um, even if that might not be the exact credential that you have on paper. Awesome. Thank you so much for that insight. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background, maybe as your, uh, tell us about like your responsibilities and your day-to-day -day as uh, a pain stewardship pharmacist? Yeah. So, the, the thing I absolutely love about pain stewardship pharmacy, and it's also sometimes the thing I don't like as much about it, is every day can look very, very different. Um, there's a, a lot of different hats that you wear. 
so for my my practice um, in pain management, the first thing I'll say is I have a kind of a split role. So only half of my time is really as a pain stewardship pharmacist. The other half is as a uh, pain stewardship faculty member. So you, you could argue that that's still time as a pain stewardship pharmacist, but you, you get my point there. Um, but within that role, uh, when I started, I started back in 2020, and our site specifically hired two pain stewardship pharmacists, myself uh, and another uh, pharmacist, a fantastic pain stewardship pharmacist named Marissa Brizzy. Uh, and we got brought in essentially with some instructions of, hey, we are wanting to build a pain stewardship program. Uh, we don't necessarily have one currently, um, but we were pretty, pretty lucky to be kind of given a kind of given the keys and, and to say, hey, we want to build this program. And we hired you two because you were able to show us what your vision for it would be. And and we're going to kind of allow you to be in the driver's seat and say they, they described it kind of as you're going to build the tracks while you're also driving the train. Um, and that's a lot of what when you talk about like, oh, this is a newer position or something that is less common, that's a relatively common situation for pharmacists in newer practice areas is a little bit of figuring out what this should be and then making it your own. Um, so a little bit of my job is uh, in administration. So how do we actually run a pain stewardship program? How do we track metrics? What are metrics that represent success in terms of pain management at the hospital level? Um, we have requirements that we need to meet as an institution for reimbursement in terms of how we are managing acute pain, chronic pain, how we manage opioids, how we are accessible for um, uh, opioid use disorder treatment, addi other addiction treatment, things like that. So there's absolutely an administrative side of things um, that might look like uh, I work with surgical departments to say, hey, we might want to improve, we want to improve prescribing after X, Y, and Z procedures. So we want to work with your department and build some order sets that are able to help standardize how we practice and how we uh, manage pain. Uh, and then we also focus a lot on the flip side of then studying that and saying, okay, so here's what we did. Now let's see how effective it was and use that to kind of guide what we want to do going forward. Um, so a lot of policies, order sets, and stuff like that, kind of similar to um, some drug policy development or P&T committee type uh, stuff. But then that's paired with uh, my direct clinical care. Uh, so that is the way that really works. Um, so I'm limited in about two days a week uh, where I get to be uh, uh, have some time for some direct clinical care. Um, but how essentially we've set that up is... Uh, inpatient teams that are managing patients who have uncontrolled acute pain, um, which is a hefty amount of patients at a level one trauma center. Um, we do a lot of education to give them the tools to manage most cases of acute severe pain. But there are times when things get pretty complicated. Maybe it's a patient with complex psych history, as well as addiction history, as well as they're in severe acute pain that needs to be treated with opioids, but they have opioid use disorder or some other 
uh, complicating factor. Maybe they have uh, they're they're older, they have poor renal function, or whatever it might be. Whatever is complicating that regimen and making it so. Hey, we're, the team isn't not quite sure how to intervene or what to change to manage their care. Uh, they can put in a pain consult to pharmacy, just like you would put in a consult to cardiology or neurology or insert specialty here. Uh, and uh, I'll usually then uh, go over with uh, my team of students and, uh, and a resident and we'll go and see the patient. Um, one of the big things with pain is you can't really adequately treat pain or measure pain via a chart. Uh, so I'm very big on following up, going and directly seeing the patient, doing a multidimensional pain assessment with them, talking with them, building some trust because that's really critical to effective pain management. And then I'll go and, and report back to the consulting team and meet with them and say, hey, here's what I found. Here's what I'd like to do. Uh, here's what I think we should do moving forward. Uh, and then just kind of collaborating with them and, and going through and either putting those orders in or some teams will want to just say, OK, thank you for those recommendations. And then they're going to go see. And usually they'll do those, put those orders in on their own, but they want to see the patient first. Everyone's a little bit different. The other aspect is on the flip side, sometimes if there's not a specific consult or uh, if we have some extra time that's not devoted to patients we already got a consult for, then we try to uh, look at reports of patients in the hospital who we think would be most likely to be complicated or have uncontrolled pain. So patients who maybe came in uh, on chronic opioid therapy, so they likely have chronic pain, they might have central sensitization or something that complicates their course. So then we can proactively reach out and say, hey, we're here, uh, we noticed this or this on their regimen, and we might encourage you to, whether it's something simple like, hey, we should probably schedule Tylenol and ibuprofen for this patient to all the way to, oh, well, we could maybe use uh, IV drip of ketamine for uh, refractory pain or something like that. So it, it really varies uh, throughout the spectrum based on patient to patient, but um, it's a mix of consults, answering those and, and seeing patients directly and mixed with some proactive reaching out of saying, hey, I've identified this patient that might give you some challenges. So here's some, here's some tips and tricks for uh, what you can do. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you have a pretty wide variety of things that you do throughout your day. And on top of that, I know you've also done some harm reduction work with a local nonprofit and you've even like published some research on it. Can you briefly explain what harm reduction is and tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so that's a, a great question and I appreciate you asking that, Eva. Um, so harm reduction, different people will define it a little bit differently. Um, but the way I like to explain it is it's a philosophy of care that really focuses on uh, respect for uh, and appreciation of patients' autonomy and their kind of ability to, to make their own decisions and make informed decisions. So uh, a lot of times in medicine, we'll kind of approach patients from a, hey, do this and this and this. And if you don't, uh, if you don't follow that exactly, we get kind of annoyed. We might say, oh, well, they're not adherent and non-compliant or this or that and kind of, oh, well, I can't help people who don't want to help themselves, which is uh, sometimes a, a trope that we hear pretty, pretty frequently. And harm reduction is, is 
really rooted in compassion. It's really focusing on understanding what is going on from the patient's perspective, recognizing their fears uh, and, and how things are going. And instead of saying, hey, this is what we need to do, it's saying, hey, how can I help you? And going that, on that level to say, hey, I'm just here to help you with what you would like to be helped with. So it, this is commonly uh, viewed as in connection to when we're talking about substance use disorders with harm reduction. But I like that other just kind of general philosophy uh, definition, because I think harm reduction's general uh, approach and philosophy really works for a lot of different parts of medicine in terms of how we can approach it differently. Um, but the key thing for, for harm reduction in terms of substance use disorders, which is where I work primarily when it comes to harm reduction, is really a recognition that opioids, drugs in general, have been around as long as society has been around. Um, the first dated opioid use goes back to the ancient Sumerians, which, uh, again, this is my nerdy wanted to be a history teacher talking, but uh, that's where we really started inventing language. The cuneiform writing from the ancient Sumerians, they were also using opioids. Um, Egypt, we learn about King Tut. Why was he such a prolific uh, ruler? Uh, he started spreading opium across the Mediterranean and selling it to Greece. So Egypt gained a lot of money during that time because of the opioid trade. It's something that has been a part of human history. And when you recognize it in that context, it changes a little bit of your perspective to say, our, our goal of saying, hey, no one use drugs and drug use just kind of, it shouldn't happen. Uh, that's not really an effective or reasonable strategy because at the end of the day, just saying, hey, don't do drugs doesn't really result in people not doing drugs. Um, it doesn't necessarily work like that. It's kind of the same reason that there's been a shift like in public education, per se, when we talk about sex education um, and health education. It's a move away from saying, oh, you know what? Maybe abstinence only education isn't the best approach. Maybe we should be educating kids accurately on health, wellness, sexual health and wellness so that they can be better informed to make better decisions or decisions that they have more control over. It's really giving the information out to them to say, hey, at the end of the day, when it comes time to you to make this decision, whether that's a decision to have sex or to use drugs or whatever that decision is, you're not going to be thinking back to, oh, what did Dr. Arndt say in that lecture five years ago? That's, that's, that's not your, oh, they said, they said to say no, so I'm going to say no. The focus should be, have we given that individual enough information so that when they're making that decision, they know more comprehensively the risks, what the potential benefits could be of whatever they're doing, how to mitigate those risks, um, and they know how to approach it so they can make those decisions for themselves. Historically, we've kind of said, oh, well, we don't want people to make the decision to use drugs, so let's not really give them a lot of information about it. But then when they use them, it ends up becoming even more dangerous. So things like providing naloxone, uh, an overdose reversal agent, is considered harm reduction. 
it's something where, hey, if you are going to ingest opioids, um, at least have this naloxone on hand. Know how to use it. Use with someone else so you're not using alone. Um, testing your drugs. If you're going to ingest drugs, one, have naloxone on hand, but also we can give you a test strip so you can know if there's fentanyl in it or not. It's all about giving individuals the tools and resources to make the decisions that over uh, that impact their health and saying, hey, you're going to make these decisions for you, regardless of what we say. We need to give you the education so that when you make the decision, you can be making the best decision possible. Um, so that's really what harm reduction looks like. Um, the the work that we've we've done is there's some really wonderful harm reduction organizations here in Cincinnati um, that we partnered with. Um, one such being Caracol, which is a local HIV prevention agency, and we developed a vending machine um, that individuals can register for and get access to naloxone, fentanyl test strips. They can get access to uh, uh, safer sex kits. Uh, uh, oral contraception, condoms, uh, they can get referred to care for substance use disorder, referred to psychiatric care, referrals to counseling services, HIV tests, they can get treatment or PrEP for HIV, um, a variety of different services that are really valuable, especially to members who are in the community of people who use or inject drugs. So, Essentially, what harm reduction is and what we have been focusing on is how do we put the resources and support out there for these patients so that they can be safer while they're using and also start to build a relationship with them so they know that they can trust us. And when they're ready to have that conversation and they they hear us say, hey, are, are you thinking about potentially stopping injecting, or have you thought about maybe getting on Suboxone or whatever that first step might be, um, that we have that trust and relationship already built with those patients to be able to bring them to the next step in care. It's kind of like if someone comes into your diabetes clinic with an A1C of eight, uh, and then they come back six months later with an A1C of 13, you don't cut them off of your practice. You say, okay, well, we might need to up your insulin. Or if we weren't on insulin, maybe it's time to be on insulin. That's a sign of, hey, we might need to do more to support you and give you care. And it's really looking and taking the same approach to addiction medicine as well as to say, hey, we're here to help you. And even if you are in active use right now and you don't think you are ready to get into uh, treatment or to start Suboxone or Methadone or something like that, can I at least talk with you about testing your drugs and having an overdose reversal agent so you don't overdose? And then we can talk later, if you're interested, about treatment or about this or that or whatever other care you need. At the end of the day, you can't get someone into treatment if they've died. So trying to do what we can to keep patients alive, keep them healthy and safe, and then also give them the resources and the support to take that next step of treatment when and if they're ready. Um, that's really the paradigm of, of harm reduction and what we're trying to do. And it, it matches with pain stewardship because we have infectious disease stewardship because if we don't responsibly use antibiotics, there's going to be antibiotic resistance and we won't be able to use it anymore. Uh, if we don't responsibly treat pain, we need to make sure we prioritize treating pain. But if we don't do it responsibly, 
it can have consequences in the form of overdoses, uh, addiction, and things like that. So the natural pairing with a pain stewardship practice, in my view, is to then also say, what are we doing in the community to those who we might improve pain care going forward, but for those who maybe got inadequate pain care in the past or are suffering from an addiction, whether or not that relates to previous pain care, what are we doing for them as well to make sure that they are uh, kept safe or at least given the resources to stay safe? Yeah, thank you so much for sharing some more information about that. I think we have time for one more question. What advice do you have for a pharmacy student who may be in their last year of pharmacy school and interested in a job like yours? Yeah, so I think the the first thing I would always recommend to, to a student uh, is to reach out. Uh, almost every, not even almost, every college has some pretty wonderful faculty members as well as preceptors and other pharmacists that you've come across and in your life that are really happy to to be a resource and to help. I always say uh, a lot of students hesitate to reach out to their professors and it's it's kind of a strange situation because if they're like, oh, well, if you, if you go into academia, if you become a faculty member or a professor, you have some innate desire to help, to mentor, to advise and to teach. Um, if you don't, then that's a whole other question about if you're in the right profession. But for that same standpoint, from the student perspective, it's important to remember that, that, hey, we got into this to be faculty members to do these types of things. We love how uh, getting the opportunity to chat with students about their career goals and see what we can set them up with that can help propel their career. Um, so I would say find faculty members that you uh, you might want that a similar position to what they have, or you just appreciate how they practice as a pharmacist. Because to be honest, even if it's not directly your specialty that they're familiar with, they can still be a really valuable resource. So that would be my first, first thing is find someone you trust to mentor you, to give you some guidance that you can ask questions with. The other thing I would say is uh, take, take a look at what is out there in, uh, in your communities. Uh, if you are someone who's hearing for the kind of first time about harm reduction initiatives right now or about pain stewardship, look and see, are there pain stewardship practices or pharmacists in your area? Could you set up an appy rotation with them? Could you even just shadow them for a day? Um, there's harm reduction volunteering organizations where some of our students, uh, or some of my students at, at UC will go and actually volunteer with Caracol uh at separate events, completely unrelated to their direct pharmacy experience. But when they go and talk to potential employers or potential uh, residency match sites, uh, those are the different things that are going to show you, oh, wow, this person's dedicated. They are not just trying to learn about this, but they are going out there and demonstrating their passion and how they actually care about this patient population. At the end of the day, um, there isn't a one right path. And it kind of goes back to my answer to the first question. Um, you might do your a pain PGY2. You might do a different one. You might do a PGY1. You might not do a residency. But at the end of the day, being a good clinician uh, comes back to what you've learned and what you are able to, to do. And so regardless of what title is on your experience or what specific credentials you have, 
Um, at the end of the day, if you can demonstrate your worth and your value and make an impact in patient care in those areas, you will be able to do enough to demonstrate, hey, I should be, I should work in this field or you should hire me for this position. Um, it's not just as much of what's on paper. I always say the positions, the titles, all of that, that gets your foot in the door for an interview. Uh, but once the interview is there, it's all about, okay, here's the experiences that are listed. Tell me about why they matter. What did you get from those experiences? There's a lot of people who have had really cool experiences that didn't learn anything from them. What you need to do as a student is to have some of those experiences, but the big thing is to say, here's the experiences I had, and here's what I learned from them, and here's how that's going to set me up as a great pharmacist for you and your organization. And if you can talk about that and your experiences there, that's that's the key. That's the biggest thing I would always say to someone is to really take time to think about what you're doing, to recognize that you've made it to this point, uh, to not take it for granted, to remember that at one point you dreamed of being a P3 studying for an exam the next day in pharmacotherapy. Uh, you might not be happy that you once dreamed that when you're at actually studying, but remembering that and taking that joy and taking that passion, not letting it die and say, okay, what can I do with this? Uh, what am I excited about? What's, what's on, the, on the horizon here? And if you're always doing that, you're going to clearly be able to demonstrate to people your passion in an area. You're going to find the things that other people don't find. You're going to learn and ask the questions that other people don't ask. And if you then take time to reflect on that and say, here's what I've learned from that experience and here's how it's going to make me better. There, there's not really a roadmap for that. That's that's just what you can do to 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 set yourself apart and really show, hey, this is someone who's going to make a difference and, and really change change practice. Essentially, you can't follow if you really want to make a difference and innovate and change practice. You can't do that by doing the same thing that's always been done. Uh, you have to in order to change practice, you have to do something different. Uh, and in order to do something different, you can't be scared away from all right. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Arndt, for joining us and sharing your story and some advice for our students. Uh, join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journeys Career Pearls for Student podcast series as we continue to explore different careers and practice settings. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP.